Preston. Hey, how's it going? Going okay. Um, kind of an interesting bunch of events over the last four days. Hi, Ellie. Yeah, I suppose your 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 uh, mood has improved drastically, huh? <laughs> my my mood is not as self destructive as it was, I guess. <laughs> Hey, Ellie. Hello. How's it going? I have all the, I, I'm all right. I have all the mixed feelings I thought I'd have. You remember me saying that if Biden is elected, I think a lot of people are just going to go right back to sleep. And I feel like, I'm like, yep. Um, just kind of looking around at how, I mean, literally people are almost making comments like that. Like, oh, I'm so glad I won't need to, um, complain about politics anymore it's like what like are you serious well ellie i think uh in my opinion we we've crossed kind of a a bar here because of the protests and because of the progressives that were actually elected i th i think biden and harris are going to be pushed and but i i agree with you ellie we really we really can't let up. I mean, I'm so uh, disgusted with this whole thing that uh, he got so close as a completely irresponsible human being that he was still so close. And uh, the Democrats didn't do themselves any favors. They didn't run a very good uh, down party um, job. They, they didn't do a real good job of changing state houses, which they have to do if you're going to see things like a better uh, health care policy or a better environmental policy. They, they, they really didn't, you're, you're, you're right in that respect, that a um, conventional Democrat won the election. And that conventional Democrat is going to stay obligated to the conventional Democrat rules so that is uh that's it's hard for me to fully embrace i guess yeah i mean and i think that people are just going to go well i guess what i'm trying to say is that i think when the kind of left libertarian types you know the the folks that we left but are pretty anti-authoritarian um start trying to hold him and Harris accountable, we're like, we're just going to get crapped on. Like, I just think that we're going to be treated like crap by uh, the centrists. And it just is really quite frustrating because I feel like folks aren't learning the lessons that need to learn. And it, it just, when people act like, Oh, this is fine. Now everything's great. We can go back to sleep. It's like they don't realize that so many of our problems manifested while Biden was the vice president or or in the Senate. Like, hello. Like, like it's just anyways. I mean, I, I will try to withhold judgment and not be like insanely cynical. But I have this like 2012 deja vu where I was I remember Obama's speech after he won reelection and he was making some claims that I had skepticism about him taking very seriously. And I was at this election party with some friends who had said all political views were welcome. And he said something. I was like, oh, I sure hope that's true. 
And my friends were just really offended by me. And I was just like, look, like, I don't, I, you know, I, I was someone who uh, was uh, pretty into Obama in 20, 2007 and 2008 and had, I guess, I don't know, Biden seemed very different back then to me, or I was clueless. I liked Biden too back then. Um, but was pretty to see Obama's first term unfold and to just see how aggressive the foreign policy continued to be under him was a shock to me. I had really, I had really hoped for something different. And I remember I, I like, I would try to expose myself to all kinds of opinions. And I remember I went to this uh, heritage foundation talk in Chicago and they were like, yeah, we don't really think Obama's foreign policy seems very different from what John McCain would have done. And I was just like, oh, my God, like this is, you know, so people on the left were obviously claiming that. But this is like people on the right claiming that. And I was just this sort of grumpy person in 2012. And there was no place for me in my community. I mean, it felt that way anyway. So I'm just like, oh, cool. I'm back like 2012 deja vu. That's fun. Um, But of course, I'm glad that like the most like this just like a fascist is getting expelled from office. Of course, that's really good news. And I I would much rather live in a system with Trump not leading it. So obviously, like, I don't mean to act like, I don't, I'm not trying to engage in false equivalency or whatever. So, um, but it's hard to be in a nuanced space because nobody wants nuanced spaces anymore. Like nobody wants to join me in like, like selective approval with the outcome you know it's like all or nothing it's either like terrible or the best thing and anyway so that's that's my week good thoughts ellie uh sorry i was a little bit late everyone but welcome to the no name podcast um and i want to um i guess affirm ellie's ambivalence about it all um one of the themes i wanted to explore today is um uh, whether or not we're in a celebratory mood. And um, I didn't find myself celebrating much yesterday. Um, I think from the fact that, uh, well, Trump left the chessboard in the checkmate for the Democrats, and they don't seem to have learned much in the last four years or the last 12 years for that matter. So um, I'm skeptical. I, I kind of, uh, Ellie was speaking to my heart as, as, as it stands today. I'm skeptical skeptical about where we go from here, though obviously um, I think the lack of or the supposed, um, what we assume to be the lack of Trump <laughs> going forward into 2021 um, seems to be a, a, a good thing. Uh, but I, I'm, I hesitate to celebrate about much uh, these days just because it seems like there's little to celebrate and a little indication that um, we've learned anything um, collectively or the Democrats in particular. And uh, I was also reflecting on the, uh, well, the last four years, I think, <laughs> namely um, when Trump was elected. So I, I went back and looked at my tweets back when I used to tweet, when I used to be on social media. And I had two, one of my last tweets <laughs> ever uh, was from election night. And it was right as it was appearing that Trump was going to overperform the, the polls and win. And I, I'd, I'd written, uh, so this is what a panic attack feels like because I was feeling like I was uh, <laughs> completely unprepared for that moment. And then the next day's tweet was uh, me saying that Trump, Trump's election was the cosmic joke of my lifetime. And uh, at that point, I didn't even know what I meant. It was more of an intuitive feeling like, uh, 
there's something really strange about this um, beyond the ideological partisan surprises to come. There is something deeper, some sort of cosmic joke. And uh, it took me took me four years to figure out what I meant. But um, this week, uh, as the election results slowly trickled in, and it appears that Trump has lost and is going back to where he came from, um, it, it struck me that, um, you know, what, what have we learned? Um, what, what, I, what I've started to kind of reinterpret um, for myself was uh, this idea that Trump <clears throat> is playing a, a role in the culture, in the society as a f- kind of trickster. So a trickster, if anyone's familiar with kind of indigenous or um, older societal um, gods and goddesses, the trickster was the, uh, the god that uh, existed to kind of throw shit in the face of the other gods and expose and upset the normal order of things um, in a periodic fashion. So when things got corrupt or sterile, uh, the trickster would appear and it was kind of an amoral figure. Sometimes it did good stuff. Sometimes it did bad stuff. Um, Sometimes it was witting. Sometimes it was just dumb. But the stuff that it did would kind of periodically upset and refresh um, a society, a culture. And it it usually had two outcomes. The one was, um, on the one hand, it'd be this periodic kind of um, um, disruption of the the perceived order of things. And everyone would have a good laugh and things would be um, changed. But in fact, in the end, it would just reinforce the old system. So it was like a periodic cleansing. And so that was kind of one, one of the roles of the trickster. And then the other role was sometimes the, the system or the culture had become so stagnant that um, the trickster was this force that uh, kind of toppled the old system and brought forth a new system or a new way of, of, of um, organizing society. And so it had this really kind of transformational evolutionary function. And so I was, I was thinking about Trump, you know, it kind of hit me this last week. The cosmic joke is that he's a trickster, a trickster figure that's amoral and doing bad things and good things and doesn't really have a compass, but his act is kind of um, fulfilling this deep cultural archetypical role in, in our society. Um, at a time, I think we need it. Um, I, you know, I think we do need some sort of injection of something. We don't really know what it is. And uh, the trickster doesn't know what it is. They're just f- fulfilling a function. But... What um, you know to tie this back to Biden, what are, what's in front of us is whether we're going to go back, you know, or return to normalcy. Um, and so the trickster just kind of upset things so it could reinforce the old system. Or did the trickster come here and and lead us uh, to a, a new way of being? And so I'm kind of in the the latter camp. I think um, it would be great if this um, disruption uh, moved us forward in in a way, in a sense, towards something better than we've been as a country, as a, as a world maybe. And, um, and we use that opportunity to do that versus kind of, you know, I think the, what Ellie was speaking to was this fear of, of returning to normalcy, uh, returning to four years ago, like nothing happened. And uh, lots of things weren't exposed. And, uh, and, and, you know, 80 million people didn't vote for Trump uh, a week ago. Um, Cause, you know, I think those, you know, it, we've talked like what were, you know, I've talked to my fans, friends and family, like what, what do those people see in Trump and, we, and I think there's a tendency for us to dehumanize them and think they're dumb or crazy or whatever um, to kind of uh, dehumanize them. But I, I don't think that's fair or a really good re- reflection of what they're um, voting for. 
And I think, you know, what are they voting for? Something they can't name or articulate, but um, they found it embodied within Trump. And so I think it is this trickster idea of we got to periodically renew our society in a kind of dirty and <laughs> uh, scary way um, by transgressing these norms. And, um, and, we'll, and we'll see what, which way the country goes. You know, I think it's still an open question which way we go. But um, this was our trickster event. And, uh, and now we, um, we have an opportunity to, to do something better, I think. I don't know where we are at during check-in, but um, I think it'd be good to continue. It's been quite a momentous week. Um, who would like to go next? Hi, Alan. Hey, Alan, are you there? We can't hear you if you're speaking. Broken. I can't. Oh. I'll listen. Nope, no, nope. we can hear you now. Can you? I, I don't know what happened. Can you, you still hear me? Okay. Sorry about that. I mostly came by to um, congratulate you and your leadership for the uh, measure two, against measure two. That was just a huge, huge, that was <laughs> two years ago, there were people telling us regarding article 14, that's the only good news this election. And now I, I'm just thrilled that you provided us with the only good news this election uh, for, for North Dakota, in, in my opinion, anyway, the best news for sure. Um, I guess I, I have, you folks are much more philosophical than I am. I, I am more of a pragmatist, I guess, or uh, someone who, is very curious to see how things go and has, and I kind of catch a ride with something floating down the river that looks like going in a direction that I want to help it go. Um, but uh, I, so I don't think the way you do, I, I, I was really tremendously depressed by the way the North Dakota election turned out otherwise. It's taken me days to get out of that funk. And today I saw some statistic that, which I knew, but I hadn't thought about it, that um, President Trump got 65% of the votes in North Dakota. And it just suddenly hit me, hey, that means one out of three people I see on the street don't disagree <laughs> about that. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to flip the switch to the more positive side, I think. I'm just... Uh, very rational, it, it, it breaks my heart. I, I, I think you're right though, Ryan, about the second kind of outcome from the trickster and it, that we can't go back. We just, we just can't, it's not there anymore. We don't have any trust. We don't have any truth. We don't have any science. Um, and and, and we're, it's all for me. Look what's happening in, in our state with the virus uh, and the way people are taking it on. I'd be willing to bet that four years ago, the governor's approach would have worked, but not anymore. So, but that, uh, I'm trying to fix my attitude problem and I don't want to end on that note. <laughs> Somebody's, somebody talk about hope.
I, I, I am agreeing with both you and Ellie about the fact that um, we, 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 we can't move back, but I disagree with Ryan that uh, he's a trickster. Uh, the trickster has been going on for 40 years. The process of what created Trump and the reason that he gained um, 70 million votes is a result of 40 years of very, very good activism on the part of corporate capitalism. And it's going to go back to corporate capitalism. The, Biden, to me, is a mainstream Democrat that um, relies on corporate capitalism as much as anybody else. And it, it is um, disturbing to me to see that there's not going to be a huge social change unless, like I said earlier, uh, people hold their feet to the fire and actually create some dynamic that's, I, I don't see it yet, but possibly there will be. Um, we, my, I, I'm getting more and more singly focused on healthcare and the fact that our federalist system of uh, states doing what the hell they want is just not working for our healthcare system. And we are, we're dying here. We're, we, we've got 230 some thousand people dead and probably between now and the time of the January 20th turnover, we're gonna have close to 300 and some thousand dead. And it's all because we as a country do not work together as a country. We've got, you know, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's crazy, it's insane. We. You know, and it, it just, it breaks my heart that we had in this country um, 70 million people who voted for a man that had absolutely no desire to do anything about our healthcare. And it, it, it's, it shows that there's something systematically wrong with our culture that, that people will accept that. And that 70 million people accept the fact that we have a person who says that our voting is flawed and that it needs to be questioned. I mean, it, it, everything about that says 70 million people in this country want a autocratic government. They don't want to be free will. They don't want to take care of people who are desperate. They don't I don't know. I, like I said, I agree. I'm heartened by the fact that Trump got voted out, but I'm disheartened by the fact that 70 million people said that he's perfectly fine and that 300 people in North Dakota, and I agree with you, Ellen, about North Dakota. North Dakota is shameful. That 300 people showed up and Kramer and uh, Armstrong and Hoven both were on those capital steps saying that our democratic voting system is flawed. When you have all these states that have had diligent poll workers working day and night to count votes and make sure that the voting is accomplished. 
what kind of people are those people? I don't get it. So I, I just feel, I, I told my daughter, I feel like we're in a um, twilight zone nightmare. That, you know, it, it just feels so off as to what our, what our life is. And like I said, if Biden and Harris get in and actually start doing something about, you know, the racial injustice, start doing something about uh, healthcare that makes sense instead of just chipping around the edges, um, I, I will start having hope. But right now I'm just feeling negative and sad because I live in a state that just basically is so weird, you know? And, and, and the fact that we did not pick up one single person and we lost how many in, you know? So the Republicans continue to just have this steamroller effect and uh, Bergam is acting like a petty dictator and uh, he's not doing anything to help us on our, our trajectory on healthcare. And it, it, you know, we live in a state of, well, I live in a state of disbelief that we live in this state. So anyway, that's my little vent. Sorry about that, but. That was not hopeful, out. Norton. I think, I think Ellen was looking for some hope. Does anyone have anything hopeful to say? Um, I, uh, I'm not to laugh at you, Norton, but I, I, I totally, you know, I think we're in a lot of agreement. Um, the way you tie finance capitalism to insurance, I think it's, it's, it's right. Um, you know, whether that's an intuitive leap or um, just what's on your mind, um, because they, they both kind of, they exist to extract money uh, from people without re returning value in the process. So I would, you know, there's health insurance, but I think all insurance is the same thing, um, which is that uh, it's, the, it's the people are selling the same product, um, so, and, and there's no pro customer service. There's no, no no value really returned in your in your insurance um, arrangement, other than you have to have it, and if you don't have it, then you're potentially catastrophe um, one catastrophe away from ruin. And so um, it just it's a, another factor of, you know. Um, what finance capital is, which is finance, um, insurance, and real estate. And, and these um, industries exist basically to extract value in everyday um, transactions that have to occur, but they're just kind of these middle people that work to extract uh, more value and create more in inefficiencies and, and kind of increase the inequality that's throughout society. So I think you're right to, to kind of link uh, finance capitalism and the health insurance because the health insurance is of all the insurances, it's the one that um, has the most uh, unequal outcomes. Um, I, I was I kind of missed the beginning of the call. Have you had a chance to check in with Dustin uh, yet? Hey, Dustin. Hey, how's it going? How's my Bring the hope for us, Dustin. Uh, well, you know. Um... <laughs> I, I I've been doing this so long I don't I don't get down and I don't get too high uh, you know it, it's uh, when when you've been through you know working professionally uh, what seven cycles uh, it it becomes old hat and you know being a disgruntled conservative libertarian um, you know we we know not to get our hopes up to begin with. <laughs> And so when you don't get your hopes up, you're not going to get too disappointed either. And, uh, you know, which is probably the North Dakotan uh, personality in general, I would say. 
people don't get disappointed too much. It is what it is. It's going to blizzard, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, what, what I've seen is interesting on, on, on the Republican side is that, uh, you know, the, the, the state of denial is uh, exactly equal to the denial that uh, they complained about from the Hillary camp. And uh, so, you know, the history just continues to mirror itself over and over. And um, the, the, uh, the, the funny thing is, you know, all this, what, what I'm seeing in, in my uh, circles is this arguing over, well, do, do people vote for a Democrat for president and then vote for Republicans down the line? And, and somehow people think that, that ticket splitting is a new concept and it, that ticket splitting is evidence of fraud. It's like, what, what planet are some people from? I don't know. But, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the conspiracy people are, are going full force. And, and you know, I, I threw out there, uh, it was designed to, you know, kind of get people riled up, which is, you know, while, while all the Trumpster types are, are wallowing in the mud and, and denying reality, uh, you know, now's the time for whoever's going to come in in 24 to, to get three months of head start before anybody else and, um, you know, start to start to reshape things in, in a different direction. Uh, at the local level, you know, other than measure two, uh, literally nothing has changed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, there is no opposition party, uh, and there, the internal disgruntled, uh, Republican faction, even though, uh, you know, there was a pretty good, uh, right in turnout for whoever got written in. They haven't, uh, dissected that on the secretary of state's site. Uh, to me, it looks like the disgruntled faction is actually smaller than it has been uh in in the last 10 years at least uh as a, as a proportion of the vote so i don't see anything really changing here there's no there's no product differentiation and uh between you know th there's no alternative to to what is going on and so you know for democrats in north dakota you know if you don't have a, a different product then what has been offered in the past, you're not going to get any different results. So uh, I think that uh, that the, the any hope in North Dakota for, for things to change in the next you know five years is, is uh, you know wishful thinking if nothing else. So uh, and that goes for both uh, the the conservative people I deal with and and then uh, Democrats. So. Uh, you know, it's, it kind of is what it is. So outside of that, I've just been, uh, Ellie and I've been going back and forth on, on the statistics related to measure two. And she, we initially found one oddity, which was that, uh, the yes people, the yes vote did the best in Sioux County, which is kind of weird. And then she, she broke down the numbers and discovered that, uh, uh, not only were Fargo and Grand Forks two, the two top uh, yes vote getters, but District 42 and 27, which are 
generally, you know, 42 is the college UND district, which is probably the most liberal district in the state, uh, had a high yes vote. And then 27 was also, so, and I'll let her get into a lot of that if she wants to, but uh, just some, some interesting uh, anomalies that, that were going on. And we've been trying to uh, figure out what could have caused that and what that means. So that's basically what I've been doing this week. Yeah, I've been um, trying to pursue demystifying that a little bit. Um, so basically right now what we just know is how counties performed and how districts performed. Um, you know, any given precinct uh, will, will belong to a county and a district. And um, so you can kind of pivot it either way. You know, you can aggregate at the district level or aggregate at the county level. Um, and now I want to try to figure out why. Um, there is a kind of interesting relationship between, um, that, I'm, that I'm trying to understand better, between county size and the vote share. So there is a, I mean, there are aberrations, like Sioux County being a little bit funny, and then that effect particularly being driven by Fort Yates and Cannonball. There was, um, like, basically, um, Measure 2 succeeded um, in Fort Yates and Cannonball, and not really anywhere else for the most part. So um, interesting kind of persuasion event that may have happened there, or a series of events, I don't really know exactly. But um, that, so that definitely falls away from the typical pattern that I'm observing, but I am observing um, a pretty, uh, pretty clean pattern that I'm trying to really sharpen and focus on of um, basically rurality and urbanity or however you want to say it um and the vote share um and so i'm um going and getting some demographic data to do a good job of this i just kind of eyeballed it at first it was you know just sort of like a whoa this pattern is undeniable let's understand it better um so i am uh getting po uh, county level population statistics and district level population statistics Unfortunately, it's just really not available to me to have precinct level uh, population statistics. That would be ideal, but um, that's not possible because actually that, that information is not centralized. Um, I've discovered along the way that I found an, uh, an article from a couple of years ago that Amy Dalrymple wrote um, that the Secretary of State, if, um, if, a, if a new county worker reaches out and says, hey, can you help me confirm these uh, precinct boundaries for my county? They'll say, no, that's your job. We have no record of that. So, um, so I am um, learning to take some data with a grain of salt. Um, but basically, the only data we can really trust at all um, would be, in terms of population statistics, would be county-level stats that we get from the census, um, and also the uh, compass, um, it's a, so the NDSU Center for Social Research puts out this, the, these reports, um, as a part of this project called the North Dakota Compass or, um, ND Compass and, um, they have legislative district reports. So, and obviously when redistricting first happens, districts are supposed to be similar in size, but over time it changes and we're obviously at the end of our particular districting. And so there are some districts that are quite a bit larger. Um, so I'm gonna look at population statistics a little more closely. I'm gonna look at median age by county and by district because I'm gonna see if there's basically like an effect of the age of the community. 
I'm going to look at, um, you know, how the proportion of pe people in the community who are people of color. I'm going to look at gender statistics. I mean, not that any of these are particularly readily available, you know, explanation of how people voted, but if they seem to account for the effect, they can help us zero in on it. I'm also hoping to get abstention from the measure by at, at the precinct level. I don't know if that would be possible. Um, you know, you can get abstention from the measure at the county level because um, you just see the number of ballots that were turned in the county, and then you see the number of yes and no votes, and whatever's re the remainder, that's your abstention. Uh, that's people not voting on the measure. I, abstention is a decent proxy for confusion um, or just, just uncertainty, just not knowing what stance to take. Um, and so I'd also like to see if some of these patterns are explained or at least there's something illuminated by seeing if there are communities that just didn't vote on the measure as much as others. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm hoping to get that at precinct level because that would be so, such a more powerful um, analysis. But I don't see where that's readily available even to just like scrape manually and put together um, on the Secretary of State site. So I might have to request it and I don't know that they'll uh, give it to me, but um, it would be really great to be able to use that. So I'm going to try to basically throw demographic and voting behavior findings at it and see if that can help shed light on why certain communities voted a certain way. I might also use like latitude and longitude to try to measure, you know, east-west, for example, because I mean, we know that it's not literally your coordinates that make you vote a certain way, but we do know there's this kind of cultural gradient from the East to the West. And, and so to the extent that any of these factors correlate with votes might give us a hint of what's going on. And then those, those counties or districts or precincts that really deviate from the trend, like they're just totally doing their own thing. They're, you know, they're not, we can't explain people voting that way by how urban they are. We can't explain by the other demographics. We can't explain then that means that something probably happened in that community. There was some sort of persuasion that happened or suppression of, you know, maybe, maybe abstention was high or something. So that could just help us understand what's going on. And I, I think this really thorough um, exploration isn't just, it isn't just me and my like data hobbyism, but also I think it really helps us understand where people are at with this issue and what we can expect moving forward. Um, one thing that um, I don't want to say concerns me, but just say it's on my mind, is that let's say in a perfect world, you know, Dustin moves forward with his um, comprehensive initiative reform that it does involve electronic signature gathering for ballot measures. Let's say that he gets sponsors um, in the legislature and we're very persuasive and we get, you know, we lobby them to vote yes and it passes both chambers and it's going to be on the ballot in 2022. So if I just find that people just really like to vote no a lot of times on these constitutional measures coming in the legislature, and it's just a really uphill battle, even if it's a good idea, you know, if just no votes just kind of loom large, um, then how do we even get people to vote for the thing that we do like? Um, you know, and, and it kind of remains to, I, we have to explore more to see were we really persuasive or it was just me this measure, just the kind of measure that people vote no to anyway. So I'm going to try to shed some light on that. And if it, if this was just the kind of measure that people tend to vote no to anyway, 
then if we put forward a measure that we know is way better, but seems similar on the surface, we might be at risk of failure for that. So we'd have to think really hard about what kind of effort of, and messaging and campaign would be relevant. So that's why I want to go deep in this rabbit hole to, to really see what we can understand about like the people's psychology of voting on this measure. Um, and so I'm going to be working on this over the next few weeks and just try to gain some understanding and share it with people. And I'm building this, um, I'm, I, I named my files silly things. So it's called mega data right now. So I'll be sharing my mega data at some point with anybody who wants to tinker with it. So it is a work in progress at the moment. So on, on the comprehensive initiative measure reform plan, uh, the feedback that I've gotten from people who are supportive of it is to make it slightly less comprehensive, uh, <laughs> that, that, that it's far too overreaching. And, and at this point, I'm, I'm deciding whether I want to restrict it to simply tying the two things the, the, the two things that I'm willing to trade, you know, the, the higher threshold percentage in exchange for the electronic signatures and make it dead simple like that. And then if the legislature tries to tack things on, then negotiate in the other pieces uh, as alternatives to what they want um, instead of trying to, you know, because basically uh, under my plan, you know, like 25% of the, the article would, would change or, or be uh, amended in or, or a, a addendum. Um, so yeah, it, it, from a, from an explaining thing standpoint, uh, having it more simple so that there's less complexity so that we don't have the, uh, the measure three problem, as I'll call it, uh, <laughs> it would, would, uh, hopefully, uh, have a better chance if we can convince the legislature to throw it on the ballot. Um, and, and then we'll go from there, see what, what sort of uh, garbage they would try to tack on and, and fight them on that, so. Yeah, Dustin, I think um, the digital signatures is probably the, the easiest um, portion of that to, to explain. And given the pandemic, I think it's probably the easiest to um, understand from uh, why we should do that now point of view. Um, have you had positive feedback from the legislators that you have approached on that particular portion of your comprehensive reform effort? Um, insofar, yes, they like it. Uh, they like the idea of it applying to them as candidates as well, uh, because you know several of them had problems with collecting signatures there and, and having people sign PDF files or, or sign pieces of paper and then convert them to PDF files. And then right. all that was kind of a, a problem. And uh, now uh, I, I did speak in the last two days with some folks that th they want to create some sort of a verification process for votes, like as a means of getting ahead of the curve on, on the voter fraud issue here. And, you know, they want that completely separate than what, I'm dealing with, they want to create a, a code or a number that's tied to each ballot that you as a voter can then ensure that after you voted, that your vote was uh, how you intended and that it was received and all those sort of things, which in theory is fine. The problem is, of course, once you have a number tied to a ballot, your privacy issue 
comes into play. And, and so there's going to have to be some sort of a cryptocurrency blockchain solution to, uh, to prevent those numbers and the people from being connected, to prevent ballot harvesting and all that kind of hacking and all that kind of stuff. But um, so I've been asked to be a part of the discussion group on that. And I can see a, a, a way where the electronic signature plan could essentially be the test bed for developing the technical uh, uh, solutions that they end up wanting. So, you know, things get tied together a little bit more closely and there's kind of this uniform system um, and, and by, by kind of working together, kind of expanding the, the coalition that would support this. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, generally the legislators are okay with it. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the people that are with us are okay with it. I mean, the, the other folks are going to be thinking it, it's making it too easy, but you know, those are just people who are stuck in the mud. So they got to get with the times. That's interesting, Dustin. Um, I don't know if you can finagle an invite to that working group or discussion group on that um, identity and voting issue. But I've I've done some some research on that and I have some ideas. Um, oh yeah, I think it. Um, yeah, so I'd like to be involved and just see what you guys are thinking okay. about. Um, I think it's a it's a very tricky problem because uh, of privacy and technology and who who holds the data and how it's um, validated but um, we won't get into it today but yeah uh, I, blockchain companies have been working on that for at least four plus years and they've all failed spectacularly <laughs> in fact uh it's a very difficult problem um and um so it'll be an interesting discussion yeah for that, sure. that, what, what i've told them so far is that to me it's a, a chicken and egg issue you kind of got to have the technical solution before you create the legal requirement and, and they want to go the other way they want to create the legal requirement and then that will spur on the technical solution and, and i said well you know that's not how things work around here <laughs> right well the technical solution is un, uninvented currently so if you can yeah. spur on an invention with a with a law then yes by all means spur that invention on. yeah but, <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do an X prize. I mean, the, the solution would be like an X prize. Maybe that's what we use legacy, some legacy fund money for, create an X prize. And, you know, if your company wants the headquarter in North Dakota and comes up with a solution that can then be sold to other states, North Dakota gets the licensing fees, you know, maybe something like that would work. <laughs> yeah, it would be an interesting use of legacy fund money is... Um... I would worry though. <laughs> the problem, so the problem with the infrastructure um, that you're you're speaking about is it really should be publicly. It should be a part of the commons, and so the the idea of monetizing it or having a government entity kind of controlling it, um, it, it goes back. So that's the idea of, of Bitcoin is that there is no um, there's no authority. The authority yeah. is within the consensus protocol of the code of, of of Bitcoin, and so no no one person, no one entity can control it. And that's really what's um, that's the promise of blockchain is this kind of a way to coordinate human activities without an authority having to be involved. And so when the government tries to do it, the problem is the government's already the authority, and so they'll try to make it a private blockchain, which uh, it just becomes like a protected spreadsheet at that point. And so all, all the good good stuff about it goes away. So it does become a chicken and egg situation, especially around who owns it or whether it can be owned. And um, 
Uh, and that's kind of where, you know, the tech, that's the reason they haven't been able to monetize it, uh, you know, as well. So those private companies are failing because there's no business idea behind this um, promise of a blockchain currently as it stands. But mm-hmm. I wanted to move back to, to Ellie's. Ellie, I got a question about abstention. Um, when you when you tease out abstention, it's pretty um, simple going from total vote versus how many people voted on, on a certain thing. But are you able to tease it out in the in the way that um, so something, you know, they, ha- they have the thing like uh, on the ballot, like, please turn over the page or there's more on the other side. Um, are you able to tease out whether someone just forgot to turn the page over and then didn't vote on the, the second page altogether? Um, or are you just um, b- basically making the 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 statements um, are, you know, the measuring abstention by the, the total number of votes cast versus um, what that particular measure got voted on. Because the data are at the precinct level, I cannot um, match up anybody's vote on one thing with anything else. And so the only way you could make an educated guess as to, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to liken this to in survey research. If you see that somebody answered your first 30 questions and then didn't answer your second 30 questions, they had survey fatigue. They just stopped taking your survey, right? And so you could infer probably, well, you don't know why. Maybe they forgot, they got distracted, or they just didn't like your survey anymore. So knowing the why is really hard. But if you did see that, you know, a voter voted for president and voted for governor and then blah, 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 and then they just dropped off, then you would know that it was maybe they, they didn't feel informed or interested enough to keep up with the rest of it. Um, but because I is at the precinct level, I have no idea like how an individual human voted when it comes, like I'll know how people voted for what for governor or how people voted for what for president and then measure two, but how those votes link together, I have no clue. And so for me, abstention is, I'm pretty agnostic as to where it came from, even though I'm, I was suggesting that it comes from a uncertainty or confusion or something. That's just like a, like a, it's not a bad proxy for uncertainty, confusion, stuff like that. So, um, but it's also a proxy for ballot fatigue. You're just tired of filling the damn thing out. So um, I can't differentiate any of those reasons for it. But the thing is, if there's one precinct that, or you know, there are precincts that systematically have more abstention on measure two than others, even though I don't know why any particular individual abstained, you know, if there's a systematic trend, it means that something about that community, those folks tend to abstain for one reason or another. And even though it can be for any number of reasons, it's really just about looking at the trends. And so if you see that communities with a lot of no votes have a lot of abstention or vice versa, yes votes tend to, uh, you know, then you kind of know that um, that there, there may be an effect of people who abstained, you, you know, you might be able to make a guess as to how they would have voted if they hadn't, or I, it just, it's really, it's a lot of guesswork, but when you see patterns, you just kind of start to get an idea of what could maybe be going on. So I say all of this without really strong hypotheses about what anything means, but that if anything jumps out at us, we can then start to, to think about what it could mean. So no, it's a very simple, a very crude measure, just like, you know, let's say in a particular community, there were 3000 ballots, but then there were only, you know, 2000 something actual votes on measure two. Then we know there's a bunch of people who didn't even vote on it. Um, and, and I just noticed some interesting trends with abstention at 
a state level before. So this is the first time I'm really, really looking at abstention in North Dakota on measures at a more fine-grained level. And so I can definitely do it at county, but like I said, I really want to do it at precinct level if possible. Um, because abstention is systematic. It isn't just willy-nilly. Um, like I've talked about before uh, with you guys that um, that the more measures on a ballot, the less abstention there is on ballot measures. So the presence of multiple ballot measures does seem to engage people and make people vote on measures. It's, you know, we, we're not seeing this phenomenon that I think a lot of people would predict is that, oh, there's more ballot measures. Ooh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm not going to touch them. I think, if anything, the presence of ballot measures signals, hey, ballot measures are important in elections and might be, make a person feel like, all right, I should really take a look at these. Well, maybe one or two measures just doesn't, doesn't signal that as much. You know, I don't know. It's just a hypothesis. But anyway, so, yeah, but I think it will still maybe help us understand a little bit what's going on. And then if some, if some communities had bizarrely high percentage of yes votes with high abstention, and then other communities had a bizarrely high percentage of yes votes with low abstention, we could think that it's not the same process going on there. Uh, you know, that, that, that's probably something different going on. Um, so anyways, when I have something to share, um, you guys can tell me what it looks like to you, but it's all very um, speculative at this time. Yeah, well, thanks for kind of the preview and I do look forward to, to what you're able to uncover. And uh, part of what uh, some of the, the promise of what Dustin's proposed for um, online signature gathering and potentially online voting would be able to, the data would be much easier to, um, to access and to um, basically mix and match and dice uh, how you want so you can draw more uh, conclusions uh, from, from it. And that would be exciting, you know, obviously if we're able to make it secure and that's the, the big if. Um, it, well, it I, just, I just want to inject here that sure. the, the, the folks are not talking about online voting. They are talking about a tracking process for traditional voting, which is a little bit lower threshold and, and probably as, as far as online voting. So maybe the issues that you were bringing up are a little bit less uh, uh, catastrophic uh, in, in, as far as uh, whether they can work or not, because they they're absolutely opposed to online voting, but they want to have a online tracking of the votes that are put in, if that makes sense. Right. So you can basically go online and be like, okay, I voted for Bergham and now I'm going to go online and see my vote for Bergham's there. Yes. I'll know personally that my vote has been counted and that there wasn't a screw up and I haven't been hacked. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, to me, it's all the same problem, but I understand where they're trying to draw this line. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. Thanks for that. Um, I where where I was going to go with um, Ellie's kind of um, this idea of ballot fatigue is that one of the interesting and I would say a productive um, outcome of uh, the last four or two cycles, 2016 and 2020, has been the um, the uh, I don't know how you want to couch it uh, the disintegration of the polling industry's ability to uh, accurately <laughs> reflect the people's will. Um, because we've had, you know, another election where the polls were way off. And um, I've read headlines where like the polling, is, you know, this is the end of polling. And as someone that really doesn't, you know, I understand the, um, the value of polling. And I did like the poll that we were able to um, uh, get accomplished for measure two to understand how people were responding to various talking points. 
and what they thought of the measure. I thought that was very informative. However, um, what the polling, I guess, national polling fatigue as it relates to Trump voters has turned out to be is that Trump, particularly Trump voters, were either not answering their phones or, you know, not answering questions regarding their affiliation with Trump. And so there was this huge polling error when it came to understanding who was going to vote for Trump. And uh, I kind of like that. Um, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, I really hate the way that we've um, used polling as a, as a proxy for news. And so we, this poll says this, um, this poll has this person up and uh, it's, it kind of creates these self-perpetuating um, news cycles where either your, your, guy, your guy or girl's up or they're down and um, it either, uh, it can sometimes increase your motivation to vote. Sometimes it can decrease your motivation to vote. But what I think it ultimately does is it um, reduces our ability to accurately understand what the people actually think. And it becomes a, another um, quiver, quiver, arrow in our quiver of, of ways to manipulate people. And, um, you know, going back to why we like direct democracy is that we, we have this idea that uh, if we all were able to express our desires um, about the society we wanted to create and the kind of the sum of those desires would create some sort of collective wisdom that could problem solve um, today's complex problems. And um, the further we get away from that structurally or just behaviorally, um, I think the easier it becomes to be Come attracted to uh, authoritarian type like Trump, um, because you're, you're you, on a personal level you're not uh, in touch with what you actually feel because you're in a state of confusion um, internally and externally. And then as a society, we don't know what other people think, and so we, we can dehumanize them as um, as it's so easy to do with people that don't agree with us. And so I, I, I I'm cheering the demise of the polling industry, though I, I have a sneaking suspicion is going to continue on. Um, but I did like that. I wanted to check in with both Dustin and Ellie specifically to see, you know, if you had any takeaways from this, these continued polling errors as it pertains to Trump, whether you think it's an anomaly, at just because Trump voters are trying to stick their middle finger at everything, um, including kind of systemic understanding of their behavior, um, or whether you think it's a, a deeper symptom of, of again, as some kind of societal change or backlash when it comes to taking a poll on the phone. Actually, it's very simple. People don't answer the phones anymore. <laughs> it, it honestly, it, you like, think that's it. That it, eighteen to thirty-four year olds do not answer the phone. Period. And older people don't answer their own numbers. So uh, when when it's caller ID is fault. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, what what I I talked to somebody who's in the campaign business who has contacts in the polling industry. And he literally said that the number of dials that they have to do to to get a proper sample has increased from, I believe it used to be eight per response, and now it's in the 30 to 40 range. So you're, you're quadrupling the number of dials that you have to get to get one response, which creates which forces polling to take a, a robocall approach. And that's what people are trying to get away from. Exactly. So, so the more, and the more the polling industry uses that approach as their solution, the less people are answering. So, you know, in, in the old days, uh, well, I mean, even not even 
before caller ID, but when cell phones started, you had the problem of, of linking, you know, people who had landlines versus cell phones responded very differently. Now, just nobody answers, you know, unless you're like me who, you know, I answer and hang up most of the time, but you know, I don't know <laughs> if the next call is somebody wanting to send me five grand. So I answer my phone. <laughs> so, you know, but, but I'm probably the, the anomaly. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very, there, there's obviously the reverse psychology and, and the people who, you know, want to screw with the polls, but before that can even factor into the results, it's just getting the person on the line. And, and that it's, it's really that mental of an issue. That sounds right to me. And, um, I, you know, you guys might be familiar with the American National Election Studies, um, and I just, I haven't touched those data in a long time, um, but uh, did some stuff with it in grad school. And I just remember, like, one of the faculty members I was collaborating with, we were just talking about how the, um, the mode of surveying had really big, uh, I don't want to say effects, more like a correlation with people's responses. Because each mode of contacting someone has its own biases. It right. fails to reach some types of people and then alienates to people who are tentatively reached, you know, alienates some of them, right? So some people, uh, you know, don't answer the phone no matter what. Some people are very anxious about talking on the phone. You know, it, it, like there's all kinds of just different delivery method concerns and self-selection. And so, there's, yeah, there's a ton of methodological concerns. I do think people trolling and answering incorrectly is, is definitely lower on the list of reasons for things being weird. Um, and um, I, yeah, I think that, the, yeah, the method needs to evolve or something. I'm not really sure what the right um, answer is because I really just think people don't really want to engage in this way so much of the time. Um, one thing, though, I just thought was really interesting is I was listening to, um, I haven't finished it yet, but I was listening to Ezra Klein's latest podcast with Chris Hayes, uh, where they're just talking about the election. And Chris Hayes is saying, you know, people had been saying, I think, I think Sarah Gideon was the woman running against Susan Collins, if I'm, I'm not sure if I have that right. But in any case, like a Senate race um, in the U.S., people were saying that she underperformed expectations, Sarah Gideon did, underperformed expectations. And he was like, no, she didn't. The, the pollsters underperformed. Like, they were wrong. Like, they just didn't have correct information about how many voters were going to vote for her. And, you know, the reality was what happened. And I just thought that was um, just a good reminder that polls are at best uh, an approximate, approximation of uh, of you know, how an election is going to go. And at the time that they're collected, people have these latent attitudes and preferences. So you, I mean, people even don't always do what they tell you they're going to do. So there's human error or human attitude change. And if you don't reach a, a good sample, a really representative sample, or you don't weight properly your sample so that you amplify the voice of people you undersample, you know, there's all kinds of things that if you just don't do a good job, or if you don't even have enough information so that you could make the results more accurate, they're just not that, you know, they're just not that helpful. So I think that, um, 
I mean, what a, what a poll isn't going to do is it's not going to show you something outrageously wrong. We just need to think of the, um, the margin of error, not in a statistical sense, but in a conceptual sense, as extremely huge. <laughs> so um, just knowing that, you know, if you see some races going, um, you know, 48-52, like, yeah, it's close. But like, don't be shocked if it turns out 40-60, like that, that maybe it was always 40-60. Um, and, but if, you, if you're finding it's 48 um, and 52 in your poll, it's probably not going to end up, you know, 90 and 10. Um, I just think we have to be really cautious about what we believe. And I think everyone's so hungry for certainty, that certainty that's not there to be found. Um, and um, we let our desire to feel like we know what's going on um, it motivates us to believe polls a little too much. Yeah, those are two great answers, guys. Thanks for that. Um, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of what you said is is the case, and uh, it kind of goes back to the way we perceive the utility of polls, which is kind of part of why I hate them. Is I think we kind of over over rely on them as a, in a general way um, for, in the search for certainty. Um, I also think that there um, we have. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a uh, survey fatigue as much as advertising fatigue and um we're we've been able to insulate ourselves in silos of of uh, you know uh, protecting our time and um and uh, being able to say no to this or that and uh, how do you connect with people you know that's part of what this group has been trying to discover is how you connect with people when uh, the the medium of connection um, self-selects or creates a kind of communication um, that maybe you didn't intend or maybe excuse what you're attempting to do or undermines what you're attempting to do. So whether it's kind of Zoom calls or in-person calls or using the internet or using Facebook, it, it shapes the group's composition and your, and your mode of communication in ways that you can't necessarily account for. And that's kind of what's going on with polls. And so it would seem that um, it's going to continue to get worse until we all have uh you know a neural link or something and so we can pull people by just you know checking what's in their brain and then uh, putting it uploading it into the cloud and having it in a public blockchain or something and they will know for sure what people think and even if they change their minds it'll be a pretty good pretty solid pull um that, that'll we'll, require skynet right yeah skynet's coming skynet will solve the polling industry uh, yeah. really bring, bring it back well, and, and, and what you're talking about is the fact that there used to be a distinction between actual polls and push polls and and now they're all one thing they're they're all the same thing yeah I, I don't know that there are any genuine academic polls anymore at least not that are publicly used well i mean that's kind of what the census is you could say the census is that one gold standard poll that we uh, we hope <laughs> i don't know what happened this well, year maybe it didn't uh, probably not because they got they lost a month and and you know people don't like that stuff i mean it, what i've heard is north dakota is going to take a beating on really non-responses and that that our our uh f map type numbers are, are going to get hit now uh we our economic overall personal income probably has declined enough in the last couple of years due to the oil uh, slack off, but uh, that will offset that as far as the federal funding issues. But um, yeah, I've been told that the, the numbers are expected to be as far as 40,000 below actual. Dang. 
Yeah, I share that concern. Well, we're at the hour mark, folks. Um, I think it'd be a good time to check out. It's been kind of a cathartic exercise so far. Um, I don't think we found anything too much to be hopeful for, Norton. Have you uh, have you been able to salvage any hope from this conversation, at least? Well, it's always interesting talking about it. It's uh, just uh, hard to uh, imagine the changes and how to make them. I mean, um, we, we, we need to make, North Dakota needs to get out of a rut that it's in. Um, and I don't know how to do that exactly because we only have two parties. One party is uh, really, really good and one party is really, really awful. And so therefore that party is gonna run this state until you know, I, I die, but uh, if uh, somehow or other, we need an opposition party, Dustin, no matter what, we're, we're, we're sitting here and we're going to stay in the same track unless we absolutely have some kind of opposition party come to play, come into play. And uh, the fact that this last election in North Dakota, I was going to ask Ellen, and, but she left, you know, what are the Democrats doing about themselves? You know, are, have, have they totally and completely thrown in the towel? That's the way it felt on this, on this one. And uh, I have to so, say, no, no, I, like, I really, I really struggle with us talking about people like that. Like, I'm not like talking about if, people, I'm talking about a party of you know, I'm talking about a Do you mean do you mean voters or do you mean the candidates and the party officers? The, like the, the, I can't the, I can't speak about voters. I can't. Like I don't know what's going on with voters, but the party officers and candidates work extremely hard. Absolutely no one is throwing in the towel. Just because you're not taking a look and getting to know them and really paying attention to what they're doing. You know, obviously they're not succeeding. Like, like I'm, you know, I live in reality too. Like I'm seeing what's happening, but um, you know, Mark Haugen only, I think that the unusual situation that Mark Haugen was in only bought him about 3% more votes. Um, and that's a very small gain. And so, you know, it, it's a head scratcher at times, but it is not throwing in the towel. Absolutely not. Those people left it all in the field and it just shook out the way that it did. And I think we have to remember that these people are, they're, they're people, they're kind, they're hardworking, they're good, they're not succeeding, but, and, you know, and, and sometimes I do wish that they would like, maybe, I, I know Dustin sometimes throws out ideas of there, maybe what they would try and could, could be successful. And I, I wish that they were interested in, you know, paying him a couple of consultancies and actually <laughs> listening, but yeah. Me but too. that's not the same thing as throwing in the towel. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, you know, and maybe, maybe, maybe over time I can convince someone to do that, honestly. But, but it's not, you know, we need to stop with the, the kind of finger wagging or the attributions that I just think are unfair. And people ran themselves ragged and they tried so hard and they're just truly wonderful people. Not, you know, not everyone's great, but a large number of them are. I know these people really well. And I love them for a reason. Um, they're good, they're kind, they mean well, 
Um, they, they're not homogenous. They all don't share the same attitudes. They really are politically diverse. And it's just such hard work, and it's just an uphill battle. And um, they are trying their damnedest. They truly are. And it's just really, really difficult. And, you know, they need more volunteers. And, I, you know, I'm not – I didn't volunteer um, this year because I was focused on Measure 2. And so I'm not trying to, you know, point fingers at people who didn't volunteer because I had my own thing going. But, you know, they, they, need, um, they need person hours. They, you know, they need help. Um, they need money. Um, and, but even with enough person hours and money, if North Dakotans are just not buying what they're selling, even though they're working really hard, that is what it is. And so we got to think about that. So, but yeah, the idea that they throw in the towel, it's just so wrong. And I think people would really be hurt to, to know that all the hours they put in, someone thinks those hours didn't exist. They are really trying. And, um, and I think if people just say this about them who don't even really know them or don't interact with them. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I just think we, I, I just respect is really big to me. And so I think we got to show them some respect for their, for their effort. It didn't work out, but these are really wonderful people who are very hardworking. And I, I really feel the impetus to stand up for them, at least on the things I know that they're doing right. Well, I, I, I want to first say this, uh, that I don't mean any disrespect. I just mean to say that we as a de the Democrats as a party, and again, I think it's a lot to do with money. I think it has a lot to do with the overall National Democratic Party. That's who I'm knocking on this, Ellie, not the local people on the ground. I'm knocking the National Democratic Party that they don't put enough effort into the work that goes on on the ground. They don't they don't seem to really care about state offices when state offices is why the Democratic Party loses over and over and over again and gets redistricted out of state after state after state because they are so concentrated in their neoliberal bubble that, that they can't understand that all these states out here that have state offices that need to be staffed, that need to be uh, nurtured, and people need to be given the money and resources to build the party, and they don't do it. They look at, you know, the, like Biden is saying, red states, blue states, there's no such thing, bullshit. The blues are just as bad as the reds in ignoring the, you know, ignoring the state party. They wonder why North Dakota and South Dakota consistently vote Republican when you don't spend any effort in nurturing the, the poor people on the ground. I mean, that's, that's who I'm knocking, Allie. I'm not doing any kind of respect to the people that are absolutely running a, into a huge, huge, huge hill that they have to run into in North Dakota. And this is what I was getting at early at the beginning of the call about product differentiation. And the, the the state parties being dragged down and by the national party, uh, and and I think that applies to both parties from from my aspect on the ideological side on the on the Republican side too, and you know my first uh, election cycle that I was heavily involved in was 2006, and in 2006 people forget what a low point that was for the North Dakota Republican Party. 
there were exactly 612 people at the state convention. Nobody wanted to run for the congressional seat against Earl Palmeray. It was the, the year where he was the only one up, Conrad and Oregon weren't. And the convention was at the end of March. And on, as of March 1st, there was no candidate. And, and this was when I recruited a friend of mine who was the college Democrat chairman at Dickinson State at the same time that I was the college Republican chair. He was one of my drinking buddies. And it, it, he ended up running for Congress for two weeks. This was my, <laughs> this was my first campaign. And uh, uh, he was the first one in. And there were two others that jumped in. One was Dwayne DeCray, who was a sitting legislator at the time. And one was Matt Mechtel, who was a farmer who was like 30-something years old. And my candidate dropped out after two weeks. And, and through his weight, whatever that was worth, behind Mechtel. And at the convention, the, it, it was decided by 17 votes. And, and there were 18 college Republicans at the convention. So literally the college Republicans decided it, but that convention was in the Minot uh, the, at, the, at the state fair center. And it was as empty as any Democrat state convention was. And so that was when nobody wanted to run for anything. No, the, there was no national support for North Dakota Republicans at the national level. And the, the Democrats, are in that position right now that Republicans were at in 2006 with regard to federal races. And it took you know, Obamacare and that sort of stuff to flip things the other way on those federal races. And so there's going to have to be, for, for if, if the opposition party in North Dakota is going to be the Democrats, and we're probably one of the few states where that's an if rather than when, <laughs> uh, that then they're going to have to develop something that is is uh, attractive to North Dakotans because back in 2006, Republicans were not attracted or North Dakotans were not attracted to voting for Republicans to federal offices, and that changed in a matter of six years. And that's how all these things always flip on a dime. If you look at the the changes in you know the the NPL era in the 20s, if you look at the 50s when the NPL switched from Republican to Democrat. And then if you look at the late 80s, early 90s, when things switched from Democrat to Republican, all these, when these things happen, it's, it's always in this 30 to 40 year period. And it, the change happens in a six year span. It's almost, you, you, can, you can almost time it with a watch. And so it's a matter of right now, because the, the difference is technology and social media and all that, uh, so, so if you want to have an opposition party, you've got to figure out how to, uh, take advantage of those historical trends and then, you know, extrapolate on it. And, and right now, from my perspective, for you guys, the national democratic party is an albatross and you, you're not going to make any gains unless that albatross is either cut away or diminished and people are, are okay with it. And, and that's gonna have to happen simultaneous to people realizing that the Republicans are not steering the state ship as well as they've claimed they have been for the last 20 years. And, and all these things, it's all about timing and messaging and, and just, you know, and then a, a little bit of luck. 
and you got to get everything exactly right or else the window passes. Yeah, that's great, Dustin. And you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's a trickle down effect from the national Democrat party to the state one. And I would split the difference between what um, Ellie was saying and what um, Norton were saying um, in, in this, in this way, which is the Democrats on the ground that we know are working super hard and doing their best and have good intentions, great intentions, and are trying to be the opposition on the ground so how government can work um, in that competitive fashion that we've seen throughout history. Um, but they don't have any guidance. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, foot, sol foot soldiers without a general. Uh, there's no strategic sophistication from the Democratic Party at a local or, or state or national level. And if you look at the last 10 years, the Republican Party, for whatever reason, has just completely overwhelmed Democratic um, strateg strategists on every, almost every plane. I, I can't think of a, a way that the Democrats have done anything well in the last 10 years from a strategic standpoint. I'm thinking of state legislatures around the country. I'm thinking about redistricting uh, the way that they are able to um, get a, you know, 200, 300 federal judges through um, under Trump and the way that uh, McConnell just thwarted Obama from 2010 onwards. And, and Obama just sat there and, and did nothing about it and, um, and, uh, and just let it happen to him. And, and this is a 10, this is now 10 years of this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's why I said Trump leaves the, he leaves the presidency, um, with the chess board in checkmate. There's there there's so much to do if you're a Democrat Democratic operative. There's so much to do to even regain balance. Um, that it can't it can't be accomplished in four years. It, it absolutely cannot. If you're thinking about the Supreme Court, if you're thinking about just the redistricting, um, these are long term strategic victories that to, to, for the Democrats to overcome, it's going to take a sustained strategic brilliance that they have not shown. And so, yeah, if you're, a, if you're running for state office in North Dakota and, and that's your, and that's your, your team, what are you supposed to do? It's like, you know, I feel for the people that I knew that were running here in Bismarck in, in North Dakota, because it's such an unwinnable battle. It's, it's really, it's really difficult um, when you don't have any ideas behind um, behind what you're doing and no strategy really of how, what you're trying to accomplish. And um, to me, I think it's simple if you're a, if you're a Democrat now, like how do you go forward? Uh, you know, be like a Republican <laughs> uh, from a strategic standpoint, which is they've embraced their base, they've um, let the energy in their party that comes from the right wing, they've let it kind of um, loose. And it's really, um, from a strategic standpoint, it's been effective. And from a, a, a get out the vote standpoint and um, a fundraising standpoint, it's been a huge mass success. And um, the Democrats don't, you know, at, as of now, they, they wanna to continue to embrace the center. And uh, in fact, 
they think they can get votes by becoming um, even more conservative. They can they can pick off the conservative votes by becoming more, and and they can't. And they, in fact, they just piss off more and more Democrats, and they depress their own turnout and their own energy by doing that. Um, so it's super, you know, from a if we're going to continue with a duopoly, it's really depressing to see one side so thoroughly outgunned and outstrategized and outmatched. And that's the last ten years. And um, to me, I don't think there there's a way, for, you know, unless you want to spend 30 years of your life fixing stuff <laughs> to even the playing field. I, I think the only way to go forward is to, to try to reduce um, the duopoly in our, in our political system, which would be to um, encourage third and fourth and fifth and sixth parties and kind of diversify the ideas, you know, the marketplace of ideas, bring it back actually from a political standpoint and let people pick and choose. And, um, and I think we'd have much better public civic discourse and we'd have you know a much bigger palette of ideas to choose from so it would have these structural and functional outcomes that would be good in the short term but then in the long term it would kind of address what what has been the uh, simple fact the republicans just crushed they've crushed <laughs> they're crushing it it's it's uh uh it's um it's just the fact of, of the matter and uh and and, and my disappointment in, in the Biden win is that they, they haven't shown they've understood that one one iota. And um, Biden is really kind of the the exemplifier, uh, exemplifier of, of this um, democratic failing. And, and he's been rewarded with the presidency. So I'm sure he will change his leaves now. Um, so yeah, I, I continue to be de depressed. And I, I think we can't depend on political parties to, to do these um, structural things. We really need to do it outside of the, the two-party system. So I guess in closing, I want to wrap it back to the trickster one more time. Um, because I, what fascinates me about American society is that we haven't, you know, as um, capitalism is starting to take over um, our public and private um, identities, We've kind of uh, created no space within culture, within community for for trickster events, and so the the Trump trickster event was well overdue, and um, I just hope we're able to to make use of it um, from a societal standpoint, and um, you know, at, coming from the arts, you know, that was what drew me to the arts is that. Um, in a capitalist society, the artists are the are the tricksters of society, and they they um, exist to portray inconvenient and, and ugly, grotesque truths, and so it makes society grapple with those truths. Um, well, I but how I wouldn't have I wouldn't have minded so much if Trump would have been a true trickster. I wouldn't have. Uh, I I'd go along with your argument on that. But he wasn't. He was. Uh, he increased the amount of uh, influence that corporate corporations have on our electoral system. He he didn't do anything about draining a swamp or making anything better. He simply, more or less, cemented the. The changes that Republicans have wanted all along. He's been a true straw dog for the Republican Party. He's given them everything they want. He's got the lower taxes for them. 
He's doing everything he can to back the Supreme Court for them. So he's not a trickster. He's just a very good um, straw man for the Republican Party. Well, I mean, the way I look at it is he, he transgressed the norms. And so the, and it was the norms, the uh, societal arrangements where we're, you know, these good faith agreements that aren't um, contracts, they aren't written in the laws, but we just follow them because that's the tradition. And he came and just tore it all up. And uh, he was the, you know, he's the uh, logical conclusion of what the Republicans have been doing, you know, as a strategy, which is, you know, pushing, pushing uh, the letter of the law and, um, and pushing the norms throughout the the last 10 years. And so he was the conclusion of that, but he's a trickster in the fact that he has, he's amoral. So I wouldn't say he's good or bad. And uh, yeah, he's done some things for the Republicans, but in a lot of ways he's killed their brand. And, and put them in a corner. And uh, if there was a, a functioning Democratic Party, they could have done something to, to you know, strategically to, to exploit that, but they didn't. They just, um, they have no ability to think in that manner at this point. So he has left them vulnerable, uh, Norton, but there's not a party or uh, a Democratic Party to, to exploit it. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem, you know, what the American society faces, you know, getting back to the, what the trickster is this kind of regenerative, a uh, way to uh, cleanse um, our um, uh, cleanse our system when it becomes too um, either too uh, sterile or just too empty. And um, traditionally, you know, the America was founded on a Protestant work ethic, and Protestants, um, unlike Catholics. Uh, didn't make room for trickster events. So, you know, back in the Middle Ages, the Catholics had their kind of festival of fools where everyone dressed up and, and changed genders and just went nuts. And this was a way to kind of regenerate the society at a very periodic um, way. And so you could go back and kind of re-embrace the rules of, of a Catholic society. When the Protestants came, they were like, that's too dangerous. We, we just got to keep working hard and keep our heads down and, and remove all these trickster elements from society. And that's where they kind of the Protestant work ethic kind of embraced capitalism and industriousness. And so over 200, 300 years of, of America, we haven't had too many um, trickster events. And we've, we've looked to the artists to, to be that cleansing um, um, element within society. But now even artists are being kind of co-opted by, by, by capitalism and by the economy. Uh, and and so we we can't even rely on our artists to do these do these things for us. Um, that's how bad it's gotten. That's that's the inflection point we find ourselves at. Even art even art can't uh, speak truth in a way that um, cleanses society because it's, everything's so capitulated to our economic needs. Uh, so I think this is this is our opportunity in front of us. This is this is what Trump has brought. This is the the good and the bad of Trump is that he's brought us to this inflection point, and I and, and I don't think the Democrats are going to take advantage of it. Obviously not. They want to go back to before, the before times. Uh, so it, it's each and every one of us have have to make decisions, have to open up, educate ourselves, evolve ourselves, uh, to take this opportunity and run with it. You know we have been gifted um, a great country with a great constitution. But if we uh, continue to look backwards and, and not uh, look within ourselves, um, we're going to not pass that gift on to our children. We're going to squander that gift. And um, so this is the opportunity. Take the gift, make it better, send it forth to the, to the future. And uh, 
with that, I think it's time to sign off. Any final thoughts, guys? It's been another interesting and awesome conversation. That's all I got. <laughs> Ellie, Norton? Well, all four of us well, here can talk, but when, what we need <laughs> is uh, a force. Uh, you know, we, we need to build something that's better than what we have. And uh, the four of us, I, I admire all, all three of you, but it, it's like we're talking and it needs to, somehow we need to grow something. And that's what I would like to strive for, so. Yeah, on that note, I'll say one thing that you know, we've talked before, I'm not sure that it's been on this podcast, maybe just in our gazillion conversations about how people are easier to mobilize sometimes when their party isn't the one in power. So one thing as I'm kind of hoping is that the struggle we've had to pull too many conservatives into our efforts, maybe that will change a little bit. Um, perhaps given uh, Trump being ousted from office and folks you know, returning to a more of a state of vigilance who people who are conservative, uh, you know, their headspace might change under a democratic president. And maybe they'll want to get to work more on the things that, you know, where we have common ground. Maybe that will, we'll just be able to bring more people into our fold and have a genuinely pan-partisan, ideologically diverse group of people working on things. So that's like one little nugget that, you know, some of you know, I've really struggled to try to get more conservatives to engage with us. And I keep running into a lot of those people just aren't interested. And the interested people are really busy. Um, and I'm hoping that we can increase the number of people who are interested. So maybe um, after this election, we'll have a little more pan-partisan collaboration. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just being optimistic. But I, re I still really do believe in um, having ideologically diverse collaboration and so maybe I'm maybe I sound like an opportunist and maybe even a, a little manipulative. I don't mean to being like, ah, ha, ha, maybe conservatives will hang out with us now, but like maybe they will. And so I'll just throw that out there in closing. That's great, Ellie. And um, yes, I think you were right. I think that is um, what the, part of the opportunity in front of us, you know, and uh, when I think of why someone voted for Trump, um, I think they feel they feel the same things we feel intuitively, but their choice was to vote um, for something to destroy it um, versus to restore it. And uh, it's kind of the same impulse. Um, so I think we can find common ground uh, with the Trump voters. Uh, and, I, and anyone that might be listening that is a Trump voter, I still would love to uh, have you on because I think the impulse, the intuition is correct. And uh, a lot of times we follow intuitions without understanding why. So I'm interested to know more about um, and collaborate like Ellie's talking about with conservatives, but specifically with people that um, have voted for Trump. I think it's, uh, I'm starting to understand, I think a little bit, maybe we'll see. Uh, and with that, you guys have a great rest of your Sunday.